0: Coming up on Tech Nation, our continuing coverage from the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas. We're talking about the capabilities of the human brain. How do surgeons become surgeons, and how do they learn new medical technologies? Pediatric orthopedic surgeon Dr. Justin Barad co-founded OsoVR to help surgeons do it better, while another MD, Dr. Daniel Chow, founded Halo Neuroscience to improve any activity requiring repetitive motion training, from athletes to musicians to people recovering from strokes and even surgeons. All this and more coming up on this week's Tech Nation.
1: Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is five minutes.
0: While my friends on the East Coast and the Midwest are up to their eyeballs in snow and ice, out here in sunny California, there's a new saying. When the sun comes out, so do the wheels. We have stand-up electric scooters and full-on electric bikes, old-fashioned bicycles with new-fashioned bike sharing, both traditional and electric skateboards and larger motor scooters. Anything that will get you from one place to another, and there's an app to share it. What's also happening has been reported in what's called JAMA. That's J-A-M-A, JAMA Network Open. That's one of 12 peer-reviewed journals published by the American Medical Association, and it publishes serious science. And what does the science say in the paper soberly entitled injuries associated with standing electric scooter use. You can guess, can't you? With the electric scooters have come accidents injuring humans, some less serious and some more so. But these were incidents observed over one year in a single Southern California emergency room. You can read the study for yourself, and probably should, because we have some hard thinking to do as a society. With the sudden availability of these stand-up electric scooters ready to be adopted in an instant with an app on your smartphone, we have once again done it first and anticipate learning from it in leisure, especially so if you're on bed rest recovering from an injury. But don't get me wrong. I'm all in favor of them, but I do think we've got to figure out who, where, and when. The answer should be no. You don't get to rent them. I don't know the total number of scooters out there or the societal setting of the medical center itself, but let's just look at the numbers. 249 people presented themselves to the ER with injuries associated with stand-up electric scooters. Over ninety per cent were riders while something less than ten per cent were non riders, presumably having gotten entangled with a scooter. Here's the numbers. 40% had head injuries, about a third had fractures, and a similar number had contusions, sprains, and lacerations. With respect to the subjects themselves, 94% were discharged the same day. 12 out of the 249 people were certifiably intoxicated. 27 patients were under 18, and only 10 patients, that would be 4%, wore a helmet. I'm not sure this is an argument for a helmet law for stand-up electric scooters. The study also counted scooter riders in a local community in a single day. Only 5% wore helmets, and few had problems. So this is the time to think about it. Without being overly cautious here, we can't have non-riders being injured. But these scooters can go up to 15 miles an hour, and that's important to consider. And if you're an adult and you want to ride without a helmet, that's one thing. But what if you're under 18? Now, riding intoxicated, well, come on, there has to be a consequence. And we have no information on the circumstances which brought these people to the ER. One of my students, a college athlete, was hit by a car who didn't see him. There is circumstance to consider as well. So, my challenge to you is this What kind of regulations would be the absolute minimum we need to stop recklessness and keep the wheels rolling? Minimum, I say, not some onerous big blanket regulation that takes all the joy out of riding free. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes.
1: 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. 5 Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.
0: From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, in our continuing coverage from the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas, we're talking about understanding and tapping into the potential of the human brain. Oso VR's Justin Broad tells us about improving surgical techniques using virtual reality, while Dr. Daniel Chow from Halo Neuroscience introduces neurostimulation to affect any activity involving repetitive motion training. When the occasion arises that we can't avoid surgery, we always want a really good surgeon. But I always wonder how do they get there? How does a medical student actually become a surgeon? How do we teach people surgery? Justin Barad is a co founder and CEO of Oso VR.
2: Yeah, well, it's a process that has existed for 100 years, and it hasn't changed too much uh, in that time. Um, so the pathway to becoming a surgeon, at least here in the U.S., um, is graduating college and then going to medical school. Um, you spend two years in classes, two years doing clinical rotations, and then you'll apply and hopefully match at a residency program. And residency program is when you start getting hands-on and patient and, and gradually start doing more um, with surgery. So it takes about five to six years to finish residency, and often people now will add an additional one to two years afterwards to sub-sub-specialize. And the way residency works is it's a a very basic apprenticeship model. So you will spend time with more senior surgeons, uh, you'll help them out in the operating room and clinic, and you'll also take care of a lot of the administrative work, so. The, <laughs> Which the, is why the
0: model has remained in place for many years. As we
2: can be very helpful. And and the, the data shows that it's, a, it's an alarming amount of time, really. It's 50% of your time in residency is spent with uh, electronic medical record systems. And uh, another issue, speaking of time away from patients, is we actually had to limit the amount of hours residents were working because they were falling asleep on the way home. And so residents can, I I do this with air quotes, only work 80 hours a week now. Uh, But they actually, when you do the math, lost about a year of training time uh, with that new uh, work hour implementation. So there's now less time in residency, which is part of the reason why additional years are being tacked on.
0: So you start and they say, "Great uh, everything 's all set now. You can close them up as they see it on television, and that that might be your part of the surgery." to begin with?
2: Yeah, that's actually absolutely right. We love when that happens as, as residents because it's, you know, you finally get to do something in the case and you've been standing there for 12 hours, not eating, not going to the bathroom, and it's nice to be able to participate a little bit. Um, so opening and closing a patient will often be um, some key tasks that junior residents will perform. And as you become more senior, ideally you'll um, be allowed to have a bit more autonomy under supervision. The problem is on the residency side that pressures to be more productive uh, as you know costs are becoming tighter that there is an incentive to finish surgery faster and while data shows that having residents in the room actually doesn't change the quality of the outcome so it's not a risk to the patient but it does slow the case down so often in service of economics, uh, residents will are allowed to do less and less as time goes on. And also as people become more aware of residents, often patients ask us not to touch them or participate in the case in any way, which is totally understandable, but where are we going to get that practice?
0: Right. So then at some point you walk across this line and you become a surgeon. How do they test you? How do they certify you're able to be a surgeon?
2: Uh, (laughs) that's a fantastic question that actually they don't. So, uh, (laughs) and you know, whether you're applying for residency, uh, whether you are in residency or whether you're out in the world, you're only ever really tested on your knowledge with multiple choice exams. Uh, but you're never actually objectively assessed for your surgical skill. The only time I personally was ever really assessed was I was interviewing for a residency program and, uh, they had me play the board game operation. Which apparently I passed uh, that exam, which, was, which is good. Um, but this is a great question and really important issue because um, in the New England Journal of Medicine 2013, there was really a landmark study that showed that um, – and this is not rocket science – A more skilled surgeon has better results, so those patients will do better. But the problem is that if we're not measuring surgical skill at any point, then we don't know how patients are being affected. And so we can't intervene and provide additional educational resources and training to the people that need it because we don't know that they need it currently.
0: Well, nevertheless, we know we have surgeons. So there is some way we get from point A where you're just, you know, hopefully opening and closing and having that opportunity to you're actually a practicing surgeon. Now, where I want to go today is as long as you're a practicing surgeon, everything is great. Today you have many new procedures, many new devices, many new approaches coming down the pike. How do those surgeons learn these new procedures?
2: That's a great question. So yeah, these surgeons who are graduating from residency, they're coming in already at a handicap because a study in 2017 showed that 30.7% of graduating residents can't operate independently. So you're already starting at kind of a, a challenging level. And what you want to do as a surgeon is bring the best technology and procedure possible to your patient and in today's world with technology the way it is new things are coming out all the time Um, and so to learn about a new technology often it's the technology company that will sponsor our training that amount of training is relatively limited so we'll often be flown out to what is called a course a bioskills course it's often in a hotel and there's a cadaver that you practice on once And these are surgeries when – I'm going to be talking about the orthopedic space, but it's very similar in in all the disciplines. These newer surgeries tend to be robotic procedures, image-enhanced procedures, minimally invasive, patient-specific, things that people really want and provide real value. Uh, But they're more complicated. So the data shows that you have to do these procedures uh, maybe 100 times before you can do it proficiently. So – Doing it once in a hotel room is not a 100 times. That's one time. And when you're actually doing that procedure on a patient, it's usually on average four to six months after that one-time experience in a hotel room. So you're there in front of the patient, and this is often the case where, at least when I was a resident, I would often be asked to scrub out and Google what to do, or the rep would be – a sales rep is in the operating room, which is also – kind of a really interesting need because these technologies are so complicated. You need an additional person from the company to help you get through the case. And so I'd be looking up YouTube videos. We'd be bumbling around. Something would inevitably go wrong. And, you know, that patient was put at risk and everybody was like, we're never using this technology again. It doesn't feel safe. But when in reality, we just didn't have enough opportunities to practice and also assess our readiness to get in there and actually have a patient receive this procedure.
0: And there are no official rules or regulations that say, this is how you do it. This is how you get more training or more experience, and then we'll let you go do it on your own.
2: Yeah, it's it's a little vague and ambiguous right now. The, the FDA really relies on medical device companies to self-regulate um, and determine the amount of readiness uh, to perform a procedure, which maximizes the ability to at least get us adequate training resources, but there's not a real standard currently, and so it varies greatly between devices and companies.
0: Well, you're an orthopedic surgeon, but you're also a biomedical engineer, and when you were young, you were a game developer, at least wanted to be a game developer. No game developer didn't start out as a game player. Big game
2: player? Uh, I I have played a game or two, Yes.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Which gets us to today and uh, uh, OsoVR. What exactly have you developed here?
2: Yeah, so what OsoVR is, um, is, it's really a a combination of my two passions, which is gaming and medicine. Um, And it is a platform that utilizes gaming technology to allow surgeons and surgical trainees to practice procedures in a hands-on, realistic way, and also assess their ability to perform those procedures. And it could be used anytime and anywhere and is highly affordable.
0: And if I just look at it here, it fits in a very small, it's almost like a laptop carry-on. It's just, it's really simple. But you've got standard VR uh, goggles, if you will, that goes over your head, two different game controllers, one for each hand, and that, those each have sort of a halo around it, and then sort of peripherals. So we're not talking about a lot of technology. What do you see and what do you feel when you're using this device?
2: Yeah, so when you put on uh, the virtual reality headset, and it's exactly as you described, you are transported to a virtual operating room where you have a patient, you have all of your instruments, in some cases you have your team members in there with you, um, and they can be in different countries, and they can participate in the training or the simulated surgery with you.
0: And they're real. They're not virtual.
2: Yeah, these are real people, um, and it's very intuitive, and uh, we do have haptic-enabled high-fives which we don't do that often in the operating room, but it's very fun in virtual reality. Uh, but once you're and in there... And a
0: haptic-enabled high-five? Yeah,
2: so when you high-five people in, in Oso VR, you can you can feel it. You can
0: feel the, the hands clapping yes, your yes, uh, and vice it's, versa. It's
2: very good for soft skill development, which is important and we could talk about later. So you have the headset on now, and now you're ready to run through a procedure. Um, and so you will participate with your team, pick up the appropriate devices and perform the steps of the surgery um, and also get tested on certain steps as well to make sure that you're doing them correctly and that you're making the right decisions for the patient given the situation and the specific anatomy that you're operating on. And basically you go from the beginning of the surgery to the end. And then get assessed on your performance and uh, understand where you can improve, whether having a better understanding of the order of operations and the steps that you need to do, whether you need to go a little bit faster, what we like to say, surgical efficiency, or whether you need to be a bit more precise. You need to be more accurate uh, with some of your 3D movements and uh, and what you're doing and also how well you worked with your team.
0: So you're an orthopedic surgeon with this before a knee replacement? What would this be for?
2: Yeah, knee replacements is uh, one of the areas we we definitely specialize in, and there's a very high volume of those and a lot of complex devices in that area. So joint replacement is one of our big focus areas, foot and ankle, orthopedic trauma. We just launched our first pediatric orthopedic module, which I'm a little biased as a pediatric orthopedic surgeon myself, which is really important because that space in particular, the pediatric space, the breadth of what can go wrong in a child is actually much more diverse than an adult. So it can be very hard to stay proficient at these thousands of different things. Um, And so we can provide the opportunity for people to refresh themselves uh, when they are going to do these types of procedures. And it's great that we have the opportunity to also innovate in the space because pediatrics is often overlooked in general when it comes to technology because the markets are smaller and uh, oftentimes uh, the willingness to pay is lower. So you know, because you don't, can't make a lot of money, a lot of people will just bypass the peat space. So uh, it's always an important part of our mission as a company to democratize education. And so, you know, whether it's attacking a, a space like pediatrics or bringing our technology ac- across the globe, uh, these are things that we have prioritized.
0: And pediatrics could mean just smaller or it could mean it's also a little different.
2: Yeah, it's, uh, it's both. Uh, So obviously, you're dealing with some some smaller people uh, who are lovely and super fun and cute. Uh, But children, um, and especially in the skeletal system have a completely different problem set than than you and I would have. So the procedures uh, that they would need and the sort of pathology or diseases that you'd be experiencing are totally different uh, than what you see in adults. And there's, there's just much greater diversity of problems that can happen. And the number it's it's more controversial in general. So the number of procedures you need to know how to do is much larger because there are multiple solutions to any given problem.
0: Now, to be clear, we're not taking you from zero to now you can become a surgeon. Basically, you already have to have a lot of the basic surgical training, right?
2: Uh, yes, and yes, no. yes and no. So yeah. there are certain basic fundamental surgical skills that everybody needs to know that are learned relatively early. So How to use, uh, in once again, I'll talk about orthopedics because we use a lot of power tools, like how to use a drill, how to use a saw, understanding dissection and tissue planes and and basic surgical technique. Those are are still important. It's not necessarily what we focus on. What we focus on is stringing together these surgical skills into a procedure. For us, it's like a surgical skill is a note. And a procedure is a piece of beautiful music that is strung together and is quite complex to learn. So we allow people to string together known surgical skills to learn new procedures. Now, I will say yes to that question when it comes to learning a new procedure because a lot of time is wasted and spent on these These steps and the early learning that really is not very efficient use of of learning time when a patient is involved. So what you want to do is you want to rapidly accelerate movement along the learning curve to get someone close to proficiency so that when they are doing real-world learning that they already have all the, the introductory materials down and now they are refining. And there are also complex 3D spatial concepts that we can teach in virtual reality that you can't really teach any other way so we can give people great understanding of how to handle all sorts of a uh, variety of situations and what we call low frequency high urgency situations so we can present someone with rare anatomy or a complication and test them to make sure they know how to get out of these situations which maybe they'll never see but when they do you know that they'll know what to do and so that's what this technology can do it can blast someone very far along the learning curve, and we have shown that when you compare someone that's been trained this way to when they did not have access to VR training, the difference is huge. And so people more than doubled in surgical performance in one of the studies we did recently when compared with non-VR individuals. So yes, but uh, definitely as a surgeon, and I want to be clear that real-world training is still a critical part of the learning process, Uh, but you don't want people jumping in on your mom or dad or yourself uh, at, at day zero. Well, you don't want them to fly to las
0: vegas get the get their one experience in the hotel room <laughs> or the hotel ballroom, and then six months later run into Mom or dad and say "Okay here's my next time I'm all ready to go and it's like it's like looking at the instructions and what yeah, what's going yeah. on we've got to get between the time they're they've gotten their initial real world uh which is how we we train people in new surgical techniques and And the first real-life patient, this is where we can really make a big difference.
2: And you 100% described it. And one of the uh, pictures we often show people to get that kind of aha moment is we have a picture of a a surgery taking place, and there's a a large instruction manual unfolded on the patient, and they're like looking at it while they're operating. It's like they're changing the timer on a VCR.
0: And the truth is, even if you've done 100 of these, we have so many steps You better be able to check as you're going, you know, you don't want to skip a step, you know, so there's this this ability to do checklists, but you're not figuring out how to do the next one. You're not putting together a toy the night before Christmas.
2: Yeah, I I think that's a great point. You know, I think we're in all sectors, we're starting to understand knowledge and skill attrition. So use Duolingo, for example. If you come back after six months of not practicing your Spanish, you, it It knows that now, and so you have to kind of re-get to the level you were at because – uh, you just haven't practiced. And this is a huge issue for us. So, uh, the other day, I was working with a pediatric hand surgeon, and she had an open femur fracture come in. Um, and she was like, I haven't done this in a couple of years. I wish there was a way I could rapidly refresh myself on doing it. I'm, I'm definitely proficient at this procedure, but it's been quite a long time, and I'd like to just make sure that I have every single nuance down. And so, yes, the, having just in time training or the ability to just check and make sure it's like, yes, I do understand all those little details. This is safe for us to proceed uh, would be fantastic.
0: Well, mothers will even tell you as they the kids were growing up, and there were all this thing going on, and they're cooking all this stuff, and it's really great. And, and then they get down to, well, we're just cooking for one or two. And then, you know, five years later, their kid shows up and says, "I really want, you know, what you always cooked." And you're like, "I don't even remember what pot I used." And you make it, and it's not quite right. And you're like, "It is like." You, but if you make it a few times, like, now I remember. Oh, yeah, it needs more of this. And oh, yeah, I forgot about this. And, you know it's like So I don't care who you are and what it is. That's the nature of being human. Uh,
2: and if my mom is listening, it would be uh, ricotta stuffed shells.
0: <laughs> so start practicing now, Mom. You can do that without VR, without VR. Um, there's a couple of things that I want to ask you about. Um, first and foremost is... What you were saying, haptics earlier, so that when you put your hand up to to a team member, a real live person, someplace else, um, you can feel that you've sort of slapped the hand, um, which I guess is called cutaneous. You've heard of subcutaneous under the skin. This is skin, cutaneous haptics. Um, we actually can experience something like that today with the iPhone.
2: Yes, so haptics is a really exciting area of new innovation and research, um, and our understanding is still pretty early, but... um Haptics is divided into different categories, and so one of the categories is something that we're all very familiar with, which is cutaneous haptics relating to light touch, pressure, and temperature. And we all feel this every day with our phones. So our phones vibrate function is actually a form of what's called cutaneous haptics. And there's actually a major leap in this technology recently with the introduction of what are called MEMS. Micro electromechanical systems and a great way to just compare this at home for anyone that's listening is comparing an iPhone 6 or a much earlier iPhone with an iPhone 7 or 8 uh, or iPhone 10 and you can definitely tell the difference in sort of the feel and the various uh sort of different feels that can be simulated um It's not really moving
0: you think it is.
2: <laughs> to the point where even the button press now is not a movable button, but it feels like one. And so, this form of haptic feedback has in research been shown to be pretty effective. Uh, when it comes to surgical simulation and robotics. So uh, in the surgical space, we're really excited about cutaneous haptics. Um, other areas of haptic feedback that people are excited about would be uh, skin stretch haptics, uh, where actually these um, mechanical balls, almost like a shiatsu massage, will move your hand and create the sensor, sense of weight, inertia, and pressure. And so there's a company called Tactical Haptics that works with this uh, for gaming. That's pretty cool. Um, and then also the concept of uh, phantom haptics. So, uh, you know, if people have ever used virt- VR um, and swear that they felt something, but there's actually no haptic feedback there, that would be an example of ph- phantom haptics or your brain actually filling in the gaps. I felt this for myself the first time when I used the Da Vinci robot. And uh, I was moving these plastic bo- blocks around with these robotic arms and I could feel it. And I could feel the pressure of holding the blocks. It was amazing. And I turned to uh, the, the technician for the Da Vinci. I was like, this is, feels amazing. How did you simulate that that sense? And he's like, oh, there's zero haptic feedback on the Da Vinci robot. And so when you there's actually some early research on this now. And our brains have something called tactile memory. And much like an optical illusion, we'll fill in the gaps and we don't even know what's happening. So a lot of exciting areas around haptic feedback. But uh, these... Uh, gaming controllers that we use for surgical simulation are quite sophisticated and seem to be very effective, um, and uh, also from a cost perspective as well.
0: Well, I I just want to point out that our brains are filling in things all the time. You don't need to need to see more than 18, 20 frames a second. And you're, you're seeing, you're thinking everything's moving. You're seeing a movie. You're actually not seeing anything continuous, but your brain's filling the whole thing in and it's just great. You know, So the, this, the, the ability of our brains to do and perceive and recall things on many levels uh, uh, are really important to these systems. Now, another area that I wanted to talk to you about was it's not just uh gee, this seems like a good idea, we can see that there is a benefit. We can measure that, right? You've been studying that.
2: Yeah, so um, I basically, I went full-time to try and solve this problem within medicine.
0: I've been speaking with pediatric orthopedic surgeon Dr. Justin Barad, co-founder and CEO of Oso VR. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available at NPR One, iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast syndication outlets. Coming up in the second half of our show, we'll hear from Daniel Chow, the CEO of Halo Neuroscience, about a neurostimulator for repetitive motion training and the science behind why it works. Stay with us. listening to Tech nation I've been speaking with pediatric orthopedic surgeon dr. Justin Barad the co-founder and CEO of oso VR
2: I basically I went full-time to try and solve this problem within medicine uh, which was scary to walk away from a, a full-time clinical career for something that I spent 14 years preparing for and so it was really important for me to be like, well, this better work <laughs> yeah. that, wouldn't, uh, you know, that, that wouldn't be or a good thing. no using.
0: ricotta-filled shells yeah, for you. <laughs>
2: that is a literal conversation I had. Uh, <laughs> so uh, one of the first things we did was we're, we tested our technology. So we took participants and we randomized them to two groups. One group was trained with virtual reality to a point of proficiency, and the other group was trained with traditional means. Now, traditional means is, is we don't have a lot of options, so uh, you know, text materials, lecture, um, and everyone was given all the steps and as much assistance as they needed during the procedure. Then we tested them on a real-world version of the procedure, not on a patient but on what we call sawbones, which are, is my favorite word, but uh, they're these physical models of bone. And what we found was that when these participants went through and we graded their performance, and the person grading them uh, did not know what training they had done, that the group that had trained in VR performed 230% better than the non-VR group, and they were more efficient. Um, So a really very, very large difference um, in what was an early version of our technology, and it's improved since then. So. Um, this definitely works. Um, and we're at this point, we're just trying to get as much out there as possible and simulate as many procedures as possible so that uh, we can make sure that people are performing things at their maximum performance.
0: Now for years, decades, even any time you have a simulator, we're talking $500,000, a million dollars, $2 million. And uh, things can get better, faster, cheaper, but not that fast, not that well. And, uh, and I thought, well, we don't usually talk about money on, on public radio, uh, but I think it's important. How much is this simulator?
2: Right. So um, I think that's a great question because you can have the the greatest simulator in the world. And if it's a million dollars, not a lot of people are going to be able to use it. And it's not going to provide a whole bunch of value to society. So once again, it's really important for us to democratize surgical simulation. So you can purchase the hardware to run... Uh, our program, uh, eventually for $400 with the new Oculus Quest, um, but a whole system can cost less than uh, six six to $700 uh, to run our software. And, uh, you know, we're trying to provide it to trainees and surgeons for free, and then we also work with uh, medical device companies and residency programs for a slightly higher cost. Um, but in general, it's about 1% of the cost of the last generation of surgical simulation, uh, so a rather exponential difference.
0: That game player in you has got to cost close to a (laughs) game.
2: Yeah, yeah, which are, you know, they're running for like $1 now. (laughs) You'll be chasing that dollar. the clash of clans of surgical simulation.
0: There you go. There you go. What's also important is you're not sitting in a garage in, in Palo Alto, California, you know, saying, I hope somebody gets this. This is actually in a number of residency programs now.
2: Correct. Yeah, we've partnered with a number of the top 10 medical device companies and residency programs, um, and it's being used globally. So in the Asia Pacific region, in Europe, and here in the U.S. Um, And residency-wise, we work with top programs like Columbia, Vanderbilt, UCLA, uh, Hospital for Special Surgery in New York, um, and many more. And so there's definitely been early on, when this was new, a couple of years ago when we started – People were not sure that this was the direction that surgical simulation needed to go for a lot of the issues that we discussed, that there were assumptions about uh, the level of realism, the type of haptics, um, and that a game technology wasn't appropriate. And Things have t- totally flipped, and this is this is now being seen as a growing standard that we're already integrating into people's curriculum. So, uh, when people go on their pediatric rotation, they run through uh, the simulations before they interact with patients. When they go on their joint rotation, the same thing. Um, and so, we're already seeing a really rapid adoption. And in an industry like healthcare, is notorious for not changing, right? And so, why, why is that happening? And I think this is a really exciting time in healthcare. Not just for education assessment, but for all technology and real opportunity for innovators and people that want to solve problems. And this is why I believe uh, that is. One is the problems are really, really bad. Um, the The problems that we're facing that are either happening now or just around the corner are so large that people are like, we need to do something. So uh, that's one thing. The next thing is that the technology is amazing. The solutions that we have are actually able to solve these problems, which was not the case just a few years ago. And then finally is technology and thanks to some of the work you're doing is just is so a part of our everyday lives at this point. It's not a weird thing. It's something we're all much more comfortable with and willing to try and experiment with. So there's been a real culture shift around how we view technology as a society, especially in a field as conservative as medicine.
0: If you go back, and it's not that many years ago, if you go back and see what happened with the first Macintosh computer and the first, um, you know, PCs that we had, what really made the difference was not that the people who built the hardware were going were to build all the software. And in your case, you've built the simulations yourself because each one is, if you will, a different VR game, you know, um, and at some point, we're going to get beyond your capability as a pediatric orthopedic surgeon. <laughs> you know, I don't know how you are at brain surgery. <laughs> we, there's a lot of expertise that is needed here and a lot of ability to develop these games. This is, in that sense, a platform. What is your plan for the development of what's going to be used on this platform?
2: I think that's one of the best questions I've ever gotten. Um, that is definitely... A big, big problem, right? There are so many surgeries, so many variety of patients and anatomy and things that need to be taught. How can OsoVR do it all, right? And so, what we are building and what our technology really is is are the tools to build these simulations. And right now, we use them ourselves. And what we can do is we just in a spreadsheet we type in, uh, insert screw here, cut this, cut that. Um, You know, whatever 100, 200 steps, and then we hit a button, and suddenly you're given a VR experience and you can run through it. And so we are taking this so that um, a, a programmer who is excited about medicine or even a surgeon or medical device company can type in these steps and create the procedures themselves so they can start creating their own content and also creating the quality check systems so that we're like, is this clinically accurate? Is this going to benefit patients? Is this a risk? And then put it onto the platform. So giving people the tools and the platform in order to create and distribute the content is how we plan to tackle that very challenge that you brought up.
0: Well, Justin, this has been absolutely terrific. I hope you come back to see us again.
2: Uh, Thank you so much for the opportunity. Hope to do it soon.
0: Dr. Justin Barad is the CEO of OsoVR. More information is available at OsoVR.com. That's Oso, O-S-S-O, OsoVR.com. Whenever we talk about our brains on Technation, we're sticklers to establish credentials. Dr. Daniel Chow is the CEO of Halo Neuroscience. He's an MD out of Stanford Medical School, and he has a master's in neuroscience. So I asked him, what you're telling us about our brains is based on those credentials, right?
3: For sure. Yeah. Yeah, I don't... Uh... It, you know, it takes it takes a lifetime to build credibility in science, and uh, I, 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 I this is a really important part of me and who I am. So, yeah, a lot of a lot of homework went into this project before we decided to really put our efforts into this.
0: What parts of our brain help us to become better athletes or better ability to to do anything physically?
3: Yeah, so there's. Different parts of your brain that are involved in this motor system or this motor circuitry that we talk about um, um, in the brain, and there's uh, a variety of different areas. But um, l- let me let me bring up one very important area because this is very topical for our talk. Um, it's called the motor cortex. So the motor cortex uh, sits in like this U shape configuration, right right above our ears, from ear to ear, and. Uh, This is where the origination of a movement starts. And then from there, it gets passed on to neurons downstream, ultimately ending at our muscles. Um, And that's what leads to movement.
0: And now let's get over to professional athletes or athletes that are at, you know, the very top of their game or people who want to be the best athlete they can. How does that area of the brain relate to their performance?
3: Yeah, so it has a lot to do with their performance. Um, Their performance of their brain dictates the performance of their movements. So, you know, I think a lot of people falsely think about physicality as being directly proportional and like the key driver to how athletic someone is. But I think they're uh, ignoring at least 50% of the picture. Um, At least the other 50% is the brain. Um, And, you know, there's our local hero, we're, we're both based in the Bay Area, um, is Steph Curry. And I've met Steph. I've shook his hand. Uh, he is only a little bit taller than me and a million times better than me in basketball. So it's not his physicality. Um, there's something else that's really special about Steph that makes him a player of a generation. And I would argue that that thing is that he's a fast learner. I, I, I don't think People think about, like, the performance of the brain and how quickly you can learn during this unique window of time where you're still in your physical prime to get all of that learning done in the first, say, 25 years of your life so that you can use it athletically to uh, to become someone, you know, like like, like Steph is today. So, uh, you know, what Steph does and he's famous for all the practice and shooting 103 pointers after every game, so on and so forth, but he's not the only player that does that. There are plenty of other basketball players that practice that much, maybe even more, and yet they're not Steph. So what is it about Steph that makes him great? And I I would argue that there's something about his brain. The plasticity of his brain is more robust, and he's able to feed his brain training repetitions that are stickier to his brain more so than other people's brain, and that's what makes him great.
0: Now, as I recall... Part of the reason you practice, even though in Steph's case, he sure does know how to play basketball. We all know that. But while you're practicing and practicing and practicing, when you're in a live situation, you don't have the time to think. So now I want to do this. You need your body sort of to react. You need your brain to be driving it on a, on a less than conscious level. And that it will do what it's supposed to do and you want it to do without you having to consciously think about it. That's That's what a lot of the training is about. But if you're able to practice for fewer hours, that may be part of what you're talking about with Steph. Yeah, that's right.
3: So, you know, we we call you know this movement that you master where you don't have to think about it. We we call it different things, like we like uh, you know. There's this word muscle memory um, that uh, probably speaks to this most um, most commonly. So, you know, what is muscle memory? Muscle memory is a movement that you can call upon without really thinking about it. Like we're walking down the street, there's this motor program stored somewhere in our brain that just kind of happens automatically, and you can type and chew gum and do other things. Now, for Steph, he's practiced shooting three pointers at a level that the world has never seen, and he's able to call on this motor program where, um, you know, he's got five gigantic guys chasing him down, trying to do everything they can to block but the a shot.
0: The window opens, and Steph shoots, a and it's three it, points. He shoots these cars, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So,
3: uh, so yeah, like this is, um, yeah, you know, I think what we do as amateur athletes or professional athletes, everybody in between, uh, the reason why we train is we're almost begging the brain to commit it to muscle, muscle memory, right? There's, you know, this ten thousand hour rule or whatever, but you know, this is like you know the, the the concept here is that um, feed the brain literally thousands of repetitions. And hope that one day it can, like that, that that movement is committed to muscle memory, and this is celebrated in culture. It's like whoa, like so much practice leading to this kind of perfection. Um, but you know, my question as a neuroscientist is like, you know, like what's going on here? Like, how can we optimize this? Like, does anyone ever ask the question? Like, why does it take so many reps? You know, why is the ten thousand hour rule the ten thousand hour rule? Like, why can't it be five or two thousand hours? Um, and and why, in my case, is it thirty thousand? <laughs> I, I somehow doubt that, but but uh, yeah. So the, uh, you know, we like we ask these questions, like you know, how can we make training more meaningful to the brain? Um, and can we do anything to the brain to make it such that it learns faster? Uh,
0: and now we go back to that area of the brain that you shape sort of from, from ear to ear on top of your head that you were describing earlier.
3: Right. So, you know, we've developed a product. It's a, it's a neurostimulator. So it uses electric fields to stimulate the brain. And in this case, this specific part of the brain called the motor cortex. Now, like what if we stimulate this part of the brain? before practice, almost priming this part of the brain so that it's more excitable. Um, now, if if we do this, it turns out that uh, if you feed the brain physical training repetitions while it's, been, while it's in this prime state, it can learn faster. It can accept that information more robustly. It can accept that information at an accelerator rate such that it's committed to muscle memory faster.
0: Now, you're not just saying that. There's got to be some science here.
3: Yes. I wouldn't be on your show if that wasn't the case. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, there's, there's some science. So there's uh, The credit goes to a couple of German scientists uh, where a little over 10 years ago published some seminal papers using this technology called transcranial direct current stimulation or TDCS. And since that time, uh, you know, we, we've had, I think, over 4,000 papers published on this topic. And, uh,
0: I, I just say this, but isn't that part of the brain inside my skull? What the of the heck do they get in there?
3: Oh yeah, so the this electric field that we create is strong enough to get through the skull, and you're very that's very smart of you to point that out. The skull is a very powerful resistor, electrical resistor. So, you know, it can't be an electric field that is so weak that it just that is basically deflected or absorbed by the skull. It needs to be stronger than that. So, uh, so yeah, you can you can test this experimentally, um, where you can take a group of people and divide them into two, and half get real neurostimulation, the other half get fake neurostimulation that feels like the real thing, but it actually doesn't work. Which is awesome because you can everybody in the study is convinced they're they're getting the real thing, but only half of them are. You do some baseline testing, you do a bunch of training with real or fake neurostimulation, and then you do some post-testing. And you would fully expect that the control group gets a little bit better because they've done some training and they do.
0: And that's the ones with the duds?
3: That's the one that those, those people are getting fake neurostimulation. But if neurostimulation is bringing anything to the party, you would expect a lift in performance over the control group with the exact same amount of training repetitions. And that's what we see.
0: And you're not the only ones that see it.
3: That's right. Yeah, there's there's labs around the world that have produced this kind of data. And, um, you know, this, I think it's important to mention that the first thing we did as a company is to replicate other people's data, other people's research protocols. Because um, let's face it, I mean, it's, there's – even in the published literature, there's some garbage out there. So, you know, the – The first thing we did as a company is just, like, verify the research, and we were able to replicate other people's protocols, which gave us um, a lot of faith in this technology.
0: Well, you came in here, and I thought, oh, he brings his own, you know, uh, noise-canceling headphones from the airplane, and he just has to have them with him at all times. They're like, oh, that's your product. (laughs) That's the Halo Sport.
3: Yeah, yeah. It looks like a regular set of headphones. And um, it, what your listeners will see is uh, there's the the one thing that's different is on the underside of the arch, um, they'll notice our we call them primers, but effectively they're electrodes. But they're
0: just—they look like rubber spikes, like, like kind of cushy rubber spikes.
3: Yeah, they look spiky, but um, I mean. But they're cushy. Yeah. Yeah. They, they're, yeah, they're 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 actually pretty comfortable. And um, that's
0: the part that goes right into your on top of your head,
3: right? Lays and lays right to, on your skull. That's right, and they they have to be they have to have the shape that look like little towers so that um it can get through hair. Uh so so yeah, the, those are the electrodes and. Um, these electrodes are in electrical contact with circuit board that's stuffed into one of the ear cups um, and uh, and that circuit board talks to an app on your phone, and that's how you control the neurostimulator.
0: Now how do you normally use it?
3: So a typical use case is that um, you would wear it for twenty minutes, typically paired with your warm up right before your workout. And so what 20 minutes of neurostimulation does is it opens up this 60-minute window where you can learn at an accelerated rate. So what we want you to do during those 60 minutes is to feed the brain training repetitions. So if you're a basketball player, practice free, pro, free, free throws or three-pointers. If you're a baseball player, practice swinging the bat or golf similarly with a club. Um, if you're a musician... Practice the scales that you want to get better at. Practice the Mozart that you want to get better at. Uh, if you're a surgeon, practice suturing. Practice the the kind of the fine movement that you need to get better at to perform a better surgery. So, uh, you know, you know, I don't want to come off like it's good for everything. The common denominator across everything that I just said is movement training, like repetitive movement training. That's what we can accelerate.
0: Now, is this a a biomedical device? I mean, it does it mm. need FDA approval?
3: Doesn't need FDA approval. So several years ago, the FDA came out with a guidance document that said, hey, um, we know about this technology. Um, yeah, we think it is safe enough to use for companies to market to otherwise healthy people without our approval. So uh, despite its Th- despite tDCS being classified as a medical device, um,
0: tCDS is uh,
3: tDCS is uh, transcranial direct current stimulation. The
0: same old technology. The we same old technology earlier with the Germans. Yeah, that,
3: that's correct. The technology that is the underlying technology in Halo Sport. That go ahead and sell to consumers. Um, just don't market it towards people with disease. And so, um, us marketing to athletes and surgeons and musicians. These are. You know, perfectly healthy people that we can market towards.
0: This is the the second version that's come out. You know, pretty quickly on the first. Who's been buying these uh, headsets?
3: Yeah, so we're known for working with Olympic athletes and professional athletes, but the vast majority of our users are amateurs. So these are runners, cyclists, CrossFit athletes. Um, they're musicians. Uh, the military might be our single biggest customer. And they use it for a shooting application. Uh, so, yeah, what it what it really comes down to is just like repetitive practice. Like, how can we accelerate that? Um, and uh, you know, on an amateur level, it's those sports.
0: Now, are there clinical applications?
3: Yeah. So, uh, you, you mentioned that I'm a doc, and you know, I'm very much, uh, you know, still like I, I you know, I, I believe that um, um, you know, treating disease is still a very big part of why I exist. Um, you know, my last company was a medical device company, and um, we actually founded Halo as a medical device company. Uh, so there's, uh, you know, there's a lot of clinical applications that we're really interested in. So um, you know, one clinical trial that we have ongoing right now is looking at stroke rehab. So half of people who suffer from a stroke uh, suffer from some kind of motor disability. You know, some folks can't walk, some people can't use an arm or a hand, and the training for that is actually very athletic. It's, it's movement repetitions. So to the same extent that we can help a football or basketball player with their movement training, like why can't we help a stroke victim with their physical therapy? So, uh yeah, you know, we've had a clinical trial that we started about a year and a half ago, and we're looking forward to like continuing with that clinical trial. As you know, these things take a long time, much longer than we we want. But yeah, we're really excited about those results. And you know, hopefully we can we can provide uh, a solution for people who have had a stroke that are looking to get their life back. So that you know, that's uh, that's really exciting to me.
0: When we have a really new technology, one that we can finally get to the consumer so many times. It's so difficult to figure out who's going to use it for what we don't know that yet. And I kind of feel like that's where we are.
3: That's true. Yeah. There's been, uh, you know, we, uh, we lost the, we launched the version one of this product two years ago and we were really surprised to see, you know, who ended up buying. Uh, so we basically, we hardly do any marketing towards musicians, we knew that it would work for musicians, but we purposely decided not to really market towards musicians because we thought it would confuse the world. It's like, wait a second, you're telling me this is great for powerlifting and also playing the violin? Like, how does that work? So we purposely decided um, to to not to not you know with our marketing messaging to just back off on musicians, and yet it just happened on its own. So that was really cool to see. Um, also uh, with surgeon training. I could have never expected that we'd have. We probably have a dozen medical schools that use this for surgeon training now. So that's awesome too. I use, like I can kind of go back to my you know my my roots and uh, <laughs> you know reconnect with medical training, which is awesome.
0: But well, we never think about that. You know, the surgery is very fine. It's got to be. You've really got to you know, get it right. You don't have a lot of options here, right?
3: And you know, a lot of surgeries these days are not done with our hands. Right. They're done basically with chopsticks through little portholes like laparoscopic surgery or like basically minimally invasive surgery is done through these little portholes. And sometimes, I mean, it's just not an intuitive movement and the learning curve is actually, it just takes a while to become an expert in basically doing surgery through chopsticks.
0: It, it's interesting that you would say that. I was uh, given a demonstration of a system at UC San Francisco, UCSF, a few years back, in which exactly that was going on. What we we're doing is having nerves severed, putting two nerves together. One comment that came from the creator of this, the doc that was the creator of this, was so many times we are interested in getting into a field that we love. But we don't know whether or not we really are good at it. We know that we're motivated. We know that we'd love to do Mm -hmm. this. But we have no test to figure out how good are we and have we – and at the end of our career, have we lost our edge? We have no way to really see that or to reinforce what we did to make sure that we're operating at this level. So there are many questions along the way uh, about what these kinds of things can do to help you.
3: Yeah, yeah, so like maybe what you're getting at is like what if you love something but you're not that good at it and you're kind of slow relative to your peers in your growth in like whatever skill you chose. I, I mean I, I can think of a couple of folks in – like when I was back in college that I genuinely believe that they picked the wrong field for themselves because they were way better at something else and could have been – they could have achieved greater professional heights if they would done something else, but they chose what they loved, which they were not that good at. So what if you could pick something that you love that you're not so good at and maybe use neurostimulation to kind of like keep up with the Joneses, keep up with your peer group?
0: Well, thank you so much. I hope you come back and see us again, Daniel. I
3: will. Thank you so much.
0: Dr. Daniel Chow is the co-founder and CEO of Halo Neuroscience. More information is available at haloneuro.com. That's Halo, H-A-L-O, haloneuro.com. From the Consumer Electronics Show, CES 2019 in Las Vegas, Nevada. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn.
1: Tech Nation and Biotechnation are productions of Tech nation media. I'm Paul Landcourt